Preeti Kassaretti is a software engineer who was previously a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And before that, she was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. Preeti, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Your recent article is called Why I Left the Best Job in the World. Why was Andreessen Horowitz the best job in the world? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it really... Um, I'm sure everyone internally has a different answer for why this is why they might like or not like the job. But personally, um, I can answer for myself why I thought it was the best job in the world. For me, um, I think there's a, a couple of different parts. One, when you're on the deal team, you kind of get to meet entrepreneurs every single day and listen to their stories and talk about them trying to build something to to do something for the world and change the world in some way and kind of reach their dreams. And, and listening to these stories, it's just like, it's it's almost hard to explain how, how amazing it is. And you, you kind of just like, you fall into their story and, just, and you just want to hear more of it and, and the passion that you feel from them. Um, it's just like, it, it was just, it was just such an amazing thing to see entrepreneurs, uh, go through that. Um, so that's one part of it. And then second, I think being at A16Z and kind of the network that they have gives you a lot of exposure to just a lot of different things. For example, A16Z has a very different model in that not only do we have an investing side, but we have a over nine, about 90 or so people that are on the operating side that sit on different teams, whether that's market development or marketing or um, corp dev. Um, and so all these kinds of teams are, are out there building a network and helping our portfolio companies becoming become successful and scale. And so you get a lot of exposure to people outside of the investing side. You get a lot of exposure to these kinds of things and you... Um, you get to kind of learn about other parts of the business as well and, 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 and work with just such a large group of people. And so the exposure was good. And, and um, for example, we have a market development team where they, the, their goal is essentially to go out and um, build a network with all the global 2000 companies and the Fortune 500 companies and then bring them in and, and kind of um, brief them on their IT initiatives and based on what they say uh, their team curates a list of portfolio companies for the big companies to see and so you can, you can go you can go to these briefings and you just kind of see how the big companies think and how how they're thinking about technology and then you get to see how a portfolio company can fit into that and how they can plug into a big company's or solve a big company's problem um, and so that kind of exposure was really really interesting for me and I think the last thing is people um, definitely some of the best people I've worked with, and I can't think of, thank them enough for such an amazing experience. Sure. So with all that in mind, why did you leave? Um, I would say it was... So I think I naturally consider myself a pretty creative person, and seeing entre seeing entrepreneurs create stuff um, gave me this itch to kind of just go and do the same thing and be a creator and be a builder. I kind of want to just go out there and, and create something and uh, create something that changes the world in some way or some shape or some form. And um, over time, I just I just couldn't wait any longer. I just like I was like I'm ready to do this, and I I have a desire to change the world. And learning to code is just like the prerequisite for me. And I I really want to just learn to code so that I can go out and change the world. And so that's why I left. I think. I could have definitely stayed longer and learned a ton more, um, but I think I was in 
in this in this state where I was like, I can't wait anymore. I was like getting really anxious. I was like, I want to go out there and be a builder. Yeah. Do you believe that at the intersection of software engineering and entrepreneurship, there is this somewhat new art form that maybe has more latitude or scope than any other art form in history? Um, like you're talking about software engineering in general and whether... Yes. I mean, well, so I think of art as like the way one metric you can use to measure art is the impact and the uh, the emotional outreach that you can have with whatever art form you make. And you think of Facebook as an example. It's like Facebook as a work of art uh, has had more impact than, uh, I mean, perhaps any other piece of art, maybe. Is, is that too much of a stretch to say? <laughs> um, I think, like, I wouldn't say it's too much of a stretch to say. I think software engineering just you know, it just reaches millions of people, um, whereas other forms of art might not be as scalable and might not reach that many people that easily. And so I think the ability, is, what software allows you to do is just kind of reach and impact so many people at once. And I think that's what, that's the beauty of it. And so that's what I love about it. And I think it's, it's, it's something that I'm learning uh, more and more about as I do it because you can, you as you're like learning to code, you see that you can build something and literally put it out there and have like maybe millions or hundreds or thousands or millions of people see it, and that's that's really empowering, I think. Yeah, and so you studied industrial and systems engineering when you were in college. How does whatever you learned in that engineering school? How does that compare to what you are learning? as a software engineer? Yeah. Um, so industrial systems engineering, in a nutshell, basically what you're doing is using, you're using engineering science and math to optimize people, systems, and processes. Um, and this is very applicable th to things like manufacturing, specifically, and, uh, and other industries. And so um, industrial engineering is very math-heavy. And uh, so I don't... I actually, when I'm getting into some of the core CS stuff like data structures and algorithms, I'm actually not finding it that much different than what I learned in some of my math classes or linear, linear algebra classes in college. And um, so I think having an engineering background definitely is helping me in learning this stuff. And it's definitely different, but I think it's very applicable. You're attending Hack Reactor to learn about programming. Is that correct? Yeah. So what is Hack Reactor? Yeah, Hack Reactor is a 12-week intense uh, boot camp in San Francisco where you um, you apply, you interview, get in, and then you go there and you basically are there six days a week and learning the code. Um, and the idea is you get out and you're ready to um, be a productive employee as a software engineer. And I've seen these coding boot camps be extremely efficient. Do you think that like, does it raise the question that perhaps college is a scam that overcharges and underdelivers <laughs> um, compared to the efficiency of a coding boot camp, like twelve week coding boot camp versus four years of college? There's so much more condensed into the twelve week coding boot camp, and they're extremely efficient at it. Yeah, I think I think like it it definitely gets the job done faster, and in terms of the tangible stuff, yes. 
But I think there are a lot of intangibles that college gives you that you can't get out of a 12-week boot camp. Like college teaches you how to make friends. College teaches you how to be an independent person. College teaches you how to network with people. Uh, college teaches you how to manage your money. Um, and so those kind of things are things, or college teaches you how to study and how to meet deadlines for projects, right? Like those are things that you kind of, like you just need time to learn those. And I think those are really hard to learn in a 12-week program. But what a 12-week program definitely does better, I think, is get you what you need to do the job. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very diplomatic answer. I probably would answer with more harshness, like my personal opinion. <laughs> I mean, so on, uh, just to give you an anecdote, so on, on Software Engineering Daily, we are planning to actually have a week of shows about coding boot camps because I think they're actually this crazy, important phenomenon, and the future is going to look more like coding boot camps and less like college. Um, and so an example, I have a friend named Hasib who has followed a path that is somewhat similar to you. Hasib and I played poker during the online poker boom. And at a certain point, I lost most of my money and I went to focus on school. And Hasib went on to become basically the best player in the world or one of the best players in the world. And then a short time later, he quit poker because he got he got disenchanted. He was like, this is boring waste of time. And so he packs his bags and he moves to San Francisco and he goes to App Academy, which is another coding boot camp like Hack Reactor, which you're attending. And so Hasib starts taking these classes at App Academy. He starts doing this 12-week coding boot camp, and he just crushes it. Like, he totally excels at it. And then very quickly, App Academy offers him a job. And now he's, like, director of product. He's, like, number two or three at the company. He understands algorithms as well as I do. And I <laughs> I have, like, a four, five-year degree from computer science. I've done all these, you know, internships and jobs and stuff. And so this is like a six- to eight-month turnaround. Like, granted, Hasib is an exceptionally maybe bright, well-educated, uh, you know, comes from great parents and so on individual. But I, I don't know. It's, I think this this says something, like, uh, you know, about the state of, you know, coding boot camps versus whatever ivory tower nonsense the, uh, the <laughs> com- computer science academia likes to espouse. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, like I, I see, I, I think I'll have to, I'll have to come back to this because once I actually go through this, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really been on the job and I haven't really seen whether that's the theory and the fundamentals are actually an important part of the job or is it really just learning to do the job? Um, and so I'm very curious actually to learn and see how it's like and how much it matters. And I'll definitely kind of write about it, um, as I go through it. Well, I mean, my sense is that there's this false dichotomy between theory and practice of computer science. Like, I don't really understand where where does the theory end and the practice <laughs> begins. I, I it seems like it's all the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, and yet, there's this there's this church and state thing where it's like college is like, oh, oh, we are a theoretical institution. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's such an interesting thing because I've I've actually heard stories of, of apparently people um, graduating with a CS degree and not ever coding, which is which is this absurd to me. It's like aren't isn't a CS degree about actually learning to code? And you realize it's not in some schools or, and so I'm very very interested in seeing how this goes. Um, I'll be a good experiment for uh, to answer your question. <laughs> interesting. Um- I mean, okay, but speaking of college, I mean, because you you decided to go to this coding boot camp versus 
going back to college yeah, for, yeah. for a computer science degree. So why did you make that decision? Yeah, um, I think, uh, as I wrote in the blog, I think, uh, for one, it was like timing. I, I didn't want to wait for another three years to go and do this. I, I want to do it now, and I couldn't wait. And secondly, I think um, I totally get that there's certain people in, in the workforce that, will, that still value the CS degree, and I, and I, I, I get that I, I, there's some people that just want that. But I think there's enough people out there who really just care about whether you can build something or not, and they really value that. And so I've t I went out and talked to enough people to realize that I won't be screwed without a CS degree, and, and so I, I was like, you know what, if I, if I can do this and get away without paying that much and wasting that much of my time, I'm just going to do the, do the short route and get experience and make up for that degree by like killing it in my first job and just like learning a ton um, in that time that I could have, in that time I would have spent in school. So you are planning to take a job out of the coding boot camp rather than start something yourself? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the more I get into the, the more I'm learning, um, the more I'm actually liking just coding and the, learning the fundamentals and, and, and I'm actually loving that art of it. And so I think I do have a deep interest in just learning how to become a big coder and uh, a good coder. And then eventually when I feel um, ready, I'll definitely go out and venture on my own. But I think I definitely do want to spend a year or two years or five years becoming doing a software engineering role. Sure. So we interviewed Nancy Hua, who is the CEO of Aptimize, and she formerly worked in algorithmic trading. So there is some similarity from her transition from a financial uh, institution uh, to building a software company. Uh, you know, it's somewhat similar to your shift from finance to software. She she described uh, a feeling of not helping other people enough when she was in finance. Um, is this at all similar to you? Do, do you? Is there some innate desire to build something that helps people? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think I always grew up with this thing in the back of my head where I was like, I'm going to change the world. And I don't know how big that will be or I don't know how small it will be, but I do want to make an impact. And to do that, I just felt like the I had to be a creator. I had to go out. I have to go out and and do something that's different and that's that's that no one that I can you bring uniquely into the world. And and so I think that wasn't going to happen if I stayed in finance. Um, I didn't see that, and I didn't see how I can change the world being a banker. Um, you know, and I can definitely relate to why why she said that. Sure. So. You've said that your mother disagrees or disagreed <laughs> at one point with your decision to move to computer science. I don't know if you want to talk about this on air, yeah, but I am yeah, very, I I'm very curious, like, why does she disagree? <laughs> so it's interesting. So my mom, um, ever since I was young, she's like, I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a doctor. And until I was in fifth grade, I was like, sure, I'll be a doctor. And then I kind of was like just learning about the world and then I went to college totally undecided didn't make didn't declare a major and then I was like oh I'm gonna do like philosophy or psychology or like all these crazy things and then nothing felt concrete enough and then I was like you know what I'm just gonna do engineering it just feels like I I can I can actually use this degree and do something with it um, and when I told her I was gonna be an engineer she was like she freaked out because she's like what like you're not becoming a doctor and like she 
she almost didn't talk to me for a couple months and she got really mad at me. But I, I was like, you know what, mom, like I'm, this is my life. Uh, you don't like, I, I need to live my life day to day. Like you, you're not living it. So I'm going to do what makes me happy. Right. And she, and then I ended up doing pretty well. And then I graduated and I got a good job and she was like happy with it. And then now that, now that I'm like settled and like doing well in life. And then she's like, why the hell would you go and do engineering now? Like, why, why are you spending all this money and time? And Do you think there is this, uh, this deprecated notion that uh, something like being a doctor is what would have the most impact, positive impact on the world, whereas now we have these things like software engineering where you have just gigantic, you can have gigantic leverage on the world, um, gigantic positive leverage, um, much more so than a boots on the ground doctor could, um, but perhaps there is this, uh, you know, this deprecated notion that it's still more noble to be a doctor. Um, do you hear any of that in the, uh, you know, the the point of view that your mother has? Yeah, I mean, I think my mom is just a very old school. Child, like she she has her own little mindset that she grew up in and she's not really you know she's not plugged into the tech world she lives in New Jersey she has her own tech job like and and her dream herself she wanted to be a doctor and so she's want she wants to fulfill that dream through me and so mm. I don't think her point of view is is well informed I think she doesn't see what's happening out here in Silicon Valley she doesn't see what's happening with software and she doesn't see that she doesn't get the importance of it um I didn't get it when I was in New, in New Jersey I I thought I didn't realize how how awesome software engineering actually is until I actually came out to the valley and see everything that saw everything that was happening here yeah I, I remember I was when I was in school uh I made a shift from biology to computer science and uh, you know, my dad was like, so how are you going to make money with this computer science thing? And I was like, well, you know, you know, those computer programs that you spend all of your time on, I'm learning how those work. And so he would say like, oh, oh okay, I, I guess I get it. And then a week later, he would ask me the exact same question once again. So I don't know. I think it's like computer science is this thing that's like completely foreign to the previous generation. And, and they really just can't get it. <laughs> it's so funny yeah I, I totally understand and I think also it's just um, like if you don't see it you don't get it like in in certain parts of the world you're just not seeing you're not seeing the impact um, so I, get, I don't blame them for having their point of views um, but I just don't agree with it I think mm, yeah okay so you worked at Andreessen Horowitz which many people would say is the best venture capital firm in Silicon Valley or maybe the most coveted, what was the most counterintuitive thing that you learned while you were working at A16Z? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess one of the things would be that how little the idea actually matters. Um, and I didn't, I think, you know, like I went in with this thing of like, I had a list of startups that I thought were like really great ideas, right? And then like completely got blown to bits because it was like it's really not the idea it's all about the who's doing it and why they're doing it what is their execu execution plan what's their differentiation how big is the market like there's so much other than the idea that matters and so people have ideas all the time it's it's not it's not a big deal if you have an awesome idea I think it's like so what almost and it's almost like 
how are you going to make that idea a reality is what I, what was like so counterintuitive to me. And I kind of, I kind of came in with a very naive perspective of like, oh, these are all great ideas. And then you're like, holy shit, doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, that was probably it. When companies are coming in and they're, they're choosing which venture capital firm to go with, do you think that many of these companies look at the different venture capitalists as like a power law distribution where uh, Andreessen Horowitz is at the top? Um, I would say, I mean, I don't want to like say A16Z is the number one and there's no other, like, you know, there's no other good VCs. I think um, there's definitely very good VCs in the Valley, like A16Z is one of them. And I think what entrepreneurs typically are look for when they're looking for a VC is kind of the size and quality of the network, um, the domain expertise, kind of the industry experience and the industry and knowledge that the partners have, um, kind of the everything else besides the money. What can they give me besides the money? Because money is almost... Uh, it's easy to get these days in the market and, and like just how the market is. And so if you can, pro- if the VC can provide a good and quality network and provide introductions and, and, and help with hiring and, and all that kind of stuff, I think that's more valuable and that's what entrepreneurs really look for. So in, in recent years, I think there's been some criticism of pure software entrepreneurship uh there's kind of this narrative of it being cowardly and like if you're not getting into hardware if you're not like launching a rocket you're you're doing it wrong uh i I think it's very maybe it's maybe it's more subtle than uh than i see it but it's it's this narrative that's kind of you know led by the elon musk uh peter Thiel notion that engineers need to step out of the world of bits and get more into the world of atoms do you think that this bits versus atoms narrative is overdone? Um, I mean, it's a it's a tough argument. I think I I'm a huge fan of Peter Peter Thiel, who's kind of the guy who came up with this, and um, I agree with him to some to some degree. I think yeah, there's a lot of irrelevant stuff being created. Like you really don't need another. Um, like photo, photo sharing photo sharing app like you know or is like some filter photo filter app and like it's just like oh my god really like are you are you going to really spend your time doing this and and so i i get that part of it but i i also don't want to completely disregard things and say like oh facebook is not an important innovation or twitter is not an important innovation because i don't agree with that i think facebook and twitter play play such um important roles in just like connecting people and and kind of like building a network amongst people and 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 you know if you look at some of the technology they're coming out with internally they're actually cre- uh, making a pretty big impact in the developer community and so I, I think it's wrong to say that they are not important companies i do think that there is are some companies that just shouldn't exist that just are 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 just redundant or like don't need to exist did those companies mostly get filtered away before they made it to the A16Z internal deal flow, or uh, which like, ones? Like the 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 ones that where you're like, oh my god, this is so irrelevant. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we're pretty at A16Z. We're open to seeing. Um, we were open to seeing a lot uh, or whatever comes in, but 
it become you start to see a lot of trends um like for example there's like waves of trends that come in and and you like you're like oh my god is it another one of these and and so what you're looking for in that case is like is like what are they what differentiates them are they are they the winner um those are the questions you start to ask okay interesting so um, we should talk some about uh, women in tech. This is actually a, a week based on uh, the, the theme is women in engineering. Um, and so, you know, I, I think some people have some women have mixed feelings about this theme because some dislike the framing of the issue as this women in tech thing. They would just want to be recognized for their work. That's the way that they want the paradigm to shift. Um, or they just don't even want to talk about the women in tech thing at all. They just want to be heads down and work on their engineering. What are your thoughts on this? Is it actually important to talk about the women in tech issue explicitly? Yeah, I think I just personally, I I would I would say I fell in the in the bucket that you just mentioned of you know like I was like you know I I, th- I never grew up realizing how much of an issue it was like I, when I was younger I never thought of myself as a female doing something or when I was younger I never thought of myself as being different because I was female I just I competed with other people I worked with other people whether male or female and I even in college I think it didn't really it didn't really hit me at all like I didn't really see that and then when I got out into the into the real world and people talk about women in tech and like I was like, why do you have to book me as a woman in tech? Why can't I be just a, a person in tech that happens to be a woman, right? Um, I get really annoyed, and I was like, I'm just another person, and I don't want to be thought of as any differently than others. And so I kind of fell in that bucket, and I didn't realize why people would bucket it that way. And then you kind of go out and you and you hear, and then when you start to hear stories like that came out last year or this year, like things like Ellen Powell and others, you're like, holy crap, this is a real thing, um, and. I don't, I don't know. I think I've been fortunate enough not to have to deal with it. Um, and I don't think there's one single person or or issue that you can blame it on. And there's no silver bullet answer. But I think it's it's like, I think it's just a, it's just there's so many ways to solve it. Like, it's not just one thing. Like, you have to, A, um, you know, people talk about how there's harassment at the workplace. And, you know, all my, most of my friends are guy friends and I don't think guys mean to harass, like when they talk or make those stupid jokes, I don't think they mean to hurt women. I don't think they actually genuinely want to go out and say this stuff. I think they just say without realizing that what it means and what it means to female when they say that. And so it's kind of like educating them that like, Hey, you're, you're in front of a woman. You shouldn't say that kind of stuff. Or um, on the other side, like with women, um, a lot of women are shy and they're intimidated and they, they, they go to meetups, but they don't really talk to people sometimes. And they kind of just like go and try to find people that they're comfortable talking to, which is generally other women. And so teaching them to go out there and be like, hey, like, don't just go in the corner and talk to your other woman. Go and talk to the men out there and like mingle with them because those are the people you're going to be working with day to day. And if you can't get comfortable with them. Um, that's really tough. And so I think it's like teaching the men, teaching the women and teaching the companies how to deal with this problem is kind of the the solution. I don't, I don't know. I I don't like it when people blame one part or like one, they don't, I don't think it's like, oh, you're, you're Facebook, you're not hiring women. It's your fault. I don't think it goes that way. So just to give an example, uh, to listeners who may be like skeptical of the, uh, the, the, the how deep the problem runs of the uh, the harassment stuff. Like 
uh, I can. There's this personal uh, story I remember where my perspective on this matter really changed, and that was like I was in college and. Before class, uh, you know, I got to class early, like five or ten minutes early, and um, there's this girl that I was friends with, uh, and she also made it to class early, and we were just chatting, and she was like, yeah, I just had a, you know, I just had an interview uh, with, you know, big company X, and, um, and she's like, I don't know how it went, I don't think it went great, and my response, this is like me being a junior in college, being like really undersensitive to this issue, I was like, Oh, you know, don't worry about it. They need to balance out the gender ratio. You're going to get the job regardless. You're you're fine. And and she's like, that's an awful thing to say. And it is an awful <laughs> thing to say because it's basically saying like it's basically saying like regardless of how well you actually performed, uh you're going to get the job because of your gender and this is something that is going to be latent and uh you're going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life. Good luck with it. Um and I think I I just I state that as an example of like somebody who I I try to be you know as conscious as anybody of discriminatory behavior and I fell right into it so that's why I think like we have to be very explicit about discussing this stuff because it's you know even if it's at the top of your mind sometimes like there's stuff that slips into the subconscious yeah exactly I think it's just making people aware of like the things they do sometimes even I don't think people actually mean to harm when they say these stuff I think right. people just don't know and yeah I was trying to be reassuring and it was like exactly <laughs> the opposite yeah I think that's actually exactly right so, uh, so this is totally a canned question but what did you think of the Ellen Powell stuff um I I mean I don't really feel I haven't I didn't really dig that deep into it but on the surface I think I think it was wrong, and I, I, I am on her side, and so I don't want to go into much more detail than that. Okay, sure. What about the with regard to the Reddit stuff? Do you think, like, did she quit because the the people, the, the denizens of Reddit were just so harsh and awful? <sighs> I wish I could answer that. Again, I like these, you know, I, I have a hard time understanding how much of the media is bullshit and how much is actually truth. And sure. so if everything that came out was truth, then yeah, I think that's absolutely not right. Um, but who knows, maybe some of it was true and some of it was not. Um, so I think I would have to be there to like say, okay, this is, this is right or this is wrong. Um, so what, what are the ways that, um, this we can actually like affect a a sea change uh away from the discriminatory uh perspective uh against women in software engineering yeah i think um i think as we said as, as we've been talking about just like educating people on on what's how to act and how to how to how to not make this make like discriminatory comments or or do things like that 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 um that disappoint women. And secondly, on the female side, I think um, uh, just like if you're a woman in tech, go kill it. I think that's the best way to solve the problem. Like kill it and do, be really good at what you do and prove that you're, you're, you're just as good as anyone else, right? And I think for me, that's how I think about it. The way I can solve the problem on my end is just being good at what I do and showing that like I'm not different than any other male in the industry, right? Like or I'm not any worse. Um, and, and so I think it falls on all, everyone's part to kind of just play their role and just be fair. And, 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 and as long as you, as long as 
for me, I think like as long as I go to a company and I don't feel like they're just hiring me because I'm a woman, I am okay with it. So would you be in, op- are you in opposition to some, see, I think it's kind of weird because there's like, you know, you can do female affirmative action for very valid reasons. Like, you know, if you're a venture capital firm, for example, you want to get balanced opinions because half of the market is women. So yeah. that's honestly an argument in favor of affirmative action for women. But at the same time, it's a double bind because as you just stated, you don't want to be hired just because you're a woman. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very personal thing. Right? And and I just, I just like to think that I bring just as much to the table as any anyone else, whether you're male or female. And so if I just knew that you were just hiring me because I was a female, that's just very, I don't know. I, I don't like that. I don't, I, it just doesn't feel right to me. I want to be hired because I'm, because you want me for me, not because sure. I'm a female. Right. Um, so let's, so. let's shift back to the topic of software engineering. What is the process of learning to code at a boot camp Like, yeah, um, I think with, I think I'm not sure how it goes at other other boot camps, but with Hack Reactor specifically, I think what they what I've um, what I've heard is initially they go into kind of the fundamentals of CS, like data structures and algorithms, um, and then they uh, then they cover some of the major like JavaScript topics, like frameworks and libraries, um, things like Angular, Node. And then they go into like databases, authentication, stuff like that. And then um, that's the first half of the program. And then the second half is all project based. And so you kind of build real world product uh, products using everything that you learn in the first six weeks. And and you do a couple individually, and then one um, big group project so that you learn how to work in teams and so forth. In your software engineering education up to now. What have been the things that are most difficult for you? What are the biggest hurdles you've had to overcome? Yeah, um, I think, so I think it was interesting. When I wrote the article, I didn't realize how many people were in the same boat I am in, um, in terms of wanting to learn and struggling and going through that struggle of of getting past that initial road bump and like that big mountain that you face when you're initially starting to learn. Um, the biggest things I, I like right now as a beginner, I think the biggest thing that trips you over initially is syntax. You, you get things wrong and things just don't work because of syntax. You might get the concept right, but you just, you trip over syntax. And then now I'm getting better at that. And I'm more, the more you practice, the more you get better at that. And now I'm trying to grasp bigger concepts. Like how do you, how does a, how do you build a front end? how do you build using a front end framework and like, how do you think bigger picture and like, how does that fit in with the back end? And like, um, those are the kinds of things that I'm learning. And, and, and in terms of troubles, I would say it's just typical stuff. Like, you know, you, you code and then you get, you, you have a bug and then you sit there and you're like, okay, like now I have to Google this and go on Stack Overflow and figure out the answer. And then sometimes it takes a day, sometimes it takes a week and you get frustrated um, but I'm, it's such an interesting process. I, I'm really loving it because it, initially I would get so frustrated. I'd be like, "Oh, I don't want to do this." Like, I didn't. I just felt like I couldn't do it. I just felt so incompetent. And then you learn that like everyone goes through it, and it's just like you just have to learn how to Google, like learn how to look for answers, learn how to find those answers, and you get better at 
not getting frustrated. I remember yesterday I was like sitting there, I was like solving this like um, algorithm problem and I was like, oh, I don't get it. And then whereas if it was before, like a month ago or two months ago, I would just been like, oh, I'm just going to skip this and go on to the next one. But I had this like, all of a sudden I have this new mindset where like, I just don't give up. I like, I want to keep going and I just want to figure this answer out. And like two hours later, I figured it out. But it was like, it was just so rewarding, right? Yeah, well, it's cool because in software engineering, the answer is always there. Like it's all, you can always get there. It's just like a matter yeah. of persistence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's when you have that, when you realize that, I think it's such a beautiful thing because you're like, then you just never give up. You just keep going until you find it. Yeah. So you've worked on some personal projects. I don't know exactly what those projects are. Um, but, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who, like, I went to school with, and I know we already touched on, like, criticizing the ivory tower earlier, but, like, I have all these friends who I went to computer science school with, and they never built anything. They never built any of their own projects. And I never understood how you can go through an entire computer science education and not feel this urge to like just like leverage these awesome things that you're learning maybe you have seen this in some of your engineering friends like the ones that uh have just gone to work at a software job just taking orders and they never build anything on their own um or maybe you haven't maybe you have or you're surrounded by super creative friends but what do you think is the what separates the people that are willing to create their own stuff from the ones who just want to take orders for their entire life Ah, that's such an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to know too, to be honest. I personally, I think I came into this with a huge, like, I didn't want to learn like CS, CS. Like, that's just a, that's daunting to say, like, I want to learn CS and like go do it. For me, I personally just wanted to build. And, and so that's, I came into it wanting to build. So I can't even, I don't even understand how you can not want to do that and like I don't know how I don't know how you can be a programmer and not want to build um because that's that's the only thing I want to do but I I don't know how to answer your question yet because I I think I haven't run across I'm sure I will run across those kinds of people who don't really care to build and just want to follow orders or they just really enjoy just purely coding and not not having to go out and do something um and be creative on their own and, and build something on their own but I haven't seen that yet do you think there's a notion of shame? Like I am, like people are ashamed to create or ashamed to believe that they can create. Um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen it. I think if hmm. if you want to, like maybe I'm so blinded and I ha- I haven't met people that feel ashamed to create. But actually, no, I take that back. I, I get your question better now. And yes, I think there's a lot of people that say that they have great ideas but are scared to put it out there. Um, and I, for example, I've gotten a lot of emails from their blog posts that say like, oh my God, I've had this idea for two years and I just like, I haven't been able to get to it. And like, I don't know if it's if it's the right thing to do. I'd love your advice. And I, I, I so yes, that, that definitely does exist. And I think, I think people make a, bigger deal about it than they should i think you should just try it and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and if it does that's awesome keep going and or if it and if it doesn't just find the next thing and build the next thing and i think i think if you think about it as like a learning and a journey it's not as scary 
So regarding what you said you were kind of averse to learning, you said computer science, you know, you just want to build things. What, and I, I know we discussed this a little bit earlier, but what is, in, even just in your head, what is th- that dichotomy there? Because this is like sort of the thing where I'm like, academia <laughs> has this screwed up notion that there is this computer science academia ivory tower bullshit thing that is not <laughs> software engineering. And I don't know where the hell that exists at. I, 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 you know, I've been building stuff for like five years at this point. I, I don't, I don't know where the theory ends and the practice begins. So, like, what? But in your mind, like, what is the computer science thing that you do not want to do? I, I guess what I'm talking about is like I didn't want to open a large college textbook and learn those kinds of problems. I wanted to learn problems that related to what I was building. And learn how to solve problems related to what I was building and what I wanted to build. Um, I don't. I can't. I'm not one of those people that can sit there and read a textbook and and learn and like enjoy that. I'm a huge hands-on person, and I just want to. I just like. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the simple answer. I, the textbook way is kind of the this fundamental CS way in my head. I don't think anybody enjoys that, actually. Like, I, I think I think it's there's some so, sort of like crowd psychosis going on uh, with people who are attending uh, universities, including myself at one point. Um, so I, I would love to talk some about the future because uh, you know Andreessen Horowitz strikes me as this very cool place where you get to see a window into what the future is. You know, you get to see these people that are building things where you're like, oh my God, in five, 10 years, this is going to just change things. Um, so I guess I would start off like, what is the future of work? Um... Because like you see this like disintermediation of the corporate job. You see all these people that are contractors or entrepreneurs or whatever. And it's just like very frothy right now. Yeah, I think that's a Great question. Um, I, I think work will be a lot more distributed, um, and meaning there's going to be a, a lot of work that will be taken over by automation, right? And so, one, there's going to be a lot less of the lower level work that needs to be done. And then, so then people have to do kind of higher level tasks and so I and so I think the na- the future of work for me is like I'm trying to figure out in my head too it's like I think that the work itself is going to shift from like if you know there's this whole thing of like oh robots are going to take over all all those kind of certain types of jobs and so but I don't think I think there will be a, a phase in which that will be really a tough phase for people if they lose jobs but I think in the end those jobs will move somewhere else um, and I'm not sure where that is and those will those will have to be seen but those jobs will like if you have robots who's going to manage those robots right and so like there's going to be other jobs that get created because of automation and so I'm not sure where that is but I think that's that that part of that part of the phase is what I'm really interested in yeah that's like the the Tyler Cowen notion that uh, robots have very segregated uh things that they're good at from the human and we have to find the human computer interaction symbiosis stuff and um it's interesting uh there's also like the aspect of the gig economy stuff and i think the gig economy is interesting because it's like uh you know i whenever i talk to an uber driver they're like i love this job and or or, you hear that like i've heard that with uh task rabbit too 
Like I love this. And yet the, the, the people that come down so hard in the gig economy are like the policymakers who have no idea how these gig economy people actually operate. Uh, I don't know, but what do you what do you think is the future of that? What's the gig economy going to evolve to? I don't know what it will evolve to, but I can tell you that I think it's such an amazing thing. Um, I know that, for example, if I want to take a year off, I can maybe become an Uber driver and take a year off and make enough money to pay my rent and pay for my food. You know, like that is not something that existed five, ten years ago, and I think that is so cool. And like also like all these platforms like um, Elance and others that are just making it so much easier to be a freelancer or, or travel around the world and still get make money and do whatever you want. I think I think there's so much more freedom in, in work, which I I, I love. Um, and I I I hope it continues to stay go in that direction. Yeah, I love the potential for it to cripple the idea of like you have to go work at this institution for two years in order to have some sort of credibility to carry it forward to your next job. That always just seems so screwed up to me. Like, I, you know, I've worked my all my jobs have been like five months, five months, eight months. Like, and then, and then I'm just like, I, I don't want to be at this terrible crumbling institution anymore. Like, let me out. And then you know, people are like, "Aren't you afraid?" You haven't worked there a year and a half. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm dying inside. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty much on the same exact boat as you. And I, I don't really understand. I don't understand that perspective because I don't, I never, I never had it, but I do, I do see what you mean. There's people that kind of think that they have to follow a path to get some, get to something, or they have to do something to do get, to get something else. But like, in my opinion, you don't have to do anything. You just have to want to do something and you go do it. Um, whether that's completely like different from any other path that anyone else in the world has taken is irrelevant. And, and I think it's just like, do you want to do it? Do you want to live that? Do you want to live that life? Do you want to be happy when you come home from work? Then go do it. Um, it's not a big deal. Like you don't have to follow what a hundred thousand other people are doing. Yeah. So, uh, another future, uh, implication thing I, I want to talk about is the the smartphone um, and like Benedict Evans talks about this a ton. He's uh, somebody you worked with at uh, A16Z. Uh, he's just written a ton about the importance of the smartphone, how it fundamentally changes things. Um, one thing I think a lot about is like the idea that the smartphone is this deflationary pressure on lifestyle costs. And basically, my idea there is basically if you know. Even if I had an additional billion dollars tomorrow, I couldn't buy something that would be better than the iPhone. So it's kind of this curious idea where it's like the best thing that you can buy in the world costs 600 or $1,000. And to me, that seems like a deflationary pressure. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I would say so, I think. Uh, just in terms of like software in general, I mean, smartphones in general, um, they do, I think they do work. They are creating a deflationary pressure on, on costs. And, um, do you think that's why millennials are like much less, um, materialistic? You think they're less materialistic in what way, I guess? Well, I mean, cause, cause we're, we're like millennials tend not to care about buying a house, buying a car. Like we don't, uh, okay. we don't care about this stuff. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I think there's so much that the smartphone has enabled 
like there's a lot less ownership needed and you can rent everything you can borrow everything you can you don't have to own every single thing um i do that for example i i'm renting a car half the time that i need it i don't need a car i'm going to give away my car i i use get around for example and i just rent my car away and i don't really have an obligation to own um and I'm going to give it, give that away too. So I don't have an obligation to own a car, even like rent. Like I don't, I don't know. Right? I don't, or like, um, um, yeah, there's a lot of examples where like the ownership part is just like not as important for my generation of people. I don't think. Would you rather have a smartphone or the wand from Harry Potter? <laughs> Definitely a smartphone. Um, Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I live on it. I read on it. I do everything on it, and I can't imagine. I can't imagine not having it. That's it. Yeah, it's like you watch Harry Potter, and they've got this like stick of wood, and it can make fire. And you're like, I don't need that. I <laughs> I just need text messaging. And, yeah, and and it's just amazing. No, I mean like not just that. Like I remember, I, you know, I go to the gym every morning, and I can get work done on my phone. Like I can answer emails while I'm on, I'm on the bike or, you know, like it's just so amazing what, how much more you can do with a smartphone in your pocket than without it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely smartphone. Okay. What is the future of education? The future of education. Um, that's a tough question. It's a, it's a topic I care. I, I do care a lot about. Um, I think the whole movement of MOOCs and online courses is definitely in the right direction. I think it, it gives access to so many more people who didn't have that access before. Um, but I do think there's still a lot of fundamental things about education that can be improved. Um, for example, why does every single student at the same age have the same curriculum? I think every student learns at a different pace and they should all have, have a very personalized curriculum that really fits to their needs and you know like there's there's parts of the, the system that can be dramatically improved and you're seeing that with companies like Alt School, which we invested in at A16Z where they actually use software to um, software and technology to personalize curriculum and classes and courses for students and so you can be a third grader you can have two third graders and they can have completely different curriculum or complete they, they can be learning at different paces just because of how fast they learn or how slow they learn. Um, so I think that's, uh, I'm not sure what the future looks like, looks like exactly, but I, um, I hope it goes in the direction of that, like more personalized learning. Less um, one size fits all. Yeah, exactly. What about exams? Oh God, I hate exams. Right? See, this is another thing where I'm like, you know, academia, you're doing it wrong. Like <laughs> it's do, so it, do, bad. It, do the project based stuff. Look, like I got like almost a 4.0 and I can't, even I say I hate, I hate exams because it's such a game. You just know, you just like, you learn, like you can be, you can be a dumbass and still get really good grades on exams because you just, you just like literally look at homework problems and you memorize them and they just like tweak them a little bit in the exams and then like, you know, it's, you can play the game. Um, exams don't really test knowledge unless you're a really, really good professor that knows how to actually create really, really good exams. And most of them don't. Uh, most of them just regurgitate. So I, I have this thesis that the uh, exam phenomenon is what perpetuates the totally broken uh, hiring strategies at tech companies where they 
they also do this like high pressure scenario. You're up at a whiteboard, like nothing like the actual software engineering job you're trying to be hired for. Um, yeah. I mean, do, do, so what's the, what's the future of hiring? Like, let's talk about that. Like, I mean, isn't this, isn't the software engineering hiring process totally absurd? Yeah, I, uh, I've been actually asking a few people this question because I'm curious to know myself as I go into this industry, what will I have to deal with and what, are the, what is the recruiting process that I have to go through? And it's, it's kind of like, it was, it was eye-opening to me to hear that it's still the whiteboarding type of process where you're, you're tested on stuff that you never use on the job. And I think there's a lot of companies, especially startups and younger companies, younger generation companies that are on the that are that are very aware of this, and they're they're changing the way they do stuff. They're changing the, the way they recruit. Um, and I'm hearing really good stories about it working out well for them. So I hope the bigger companies follow in their suit, and 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 I hope that the they that the smaller companies can show enough success to prove to the some of the bigger companies that this is the way you should recruit, and it should be like. Real, like testing them on stuff that they would do in the real jo- on the real job. Like maybe go take home a project and build it, um, and show us how well you can do that um, versus a whiteboarding problem. And so I hope the future of hiring is more project and real world work work based versus uh, kind of theory and algorithms and, and data structure type stuff. Okay, so final question: Do you think that everybody should learn software engineering? I I think. Yes, um, I think you should. I think, I think software engineering is kind of a superpower, and if you can have that superpower, it's it's. I can't even describe in words. It's like it's amazing. Like code is a tool that you can that lets you tell your story um, through through the code, right? You can communicate any idea you want you want by talking to a computer, um, and you can do it in a scalable way. And I think it's very empowering. And if you can have that skill set, you will be, like, very well um, prepared and equipped to, uh, to kind of go out in this world and do something important. Preeti Kasaretti, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff.